invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our text this Lord's Day. It's found in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Israel's present claims to the land in which she dwells are not the realization uh, of the promise that God made to Abraham and to his collective seed that we find back in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 8. For the promise of dwelling securely and at peace within the land will only be biblically realized when Israel turns in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ and is brought into the visible church of Jesus Christ. That's what was promised. Even in Romans chapter 11, verses 23 through 24, where Paul says, and they also, that is unbelieving Israel, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, that is into the olive tree, into the visible church. For God is able to graft them in again, For if thou, now speaking to the Gentile believers, were cut out of the olive tree which was wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, namely the visible church, how much more shall these, that is the natural branches, Israel is a nation, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. Though there is a future national salvation promised to Israel in Scripture, a salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and though there is a a future national restoration of the land to Israel in which she will dwell at that time in peace and in safety with all of the nations that are in the world at that time, the constant bloody battles in which Israel has been engaged since 1948 when she was constituted as a nation is rather an indication of God's continued judgment upon her for her rejection of Christ and of the gospel than an indication of God's blessing God's present blessing upon her. And at the same time, let us always maintain this biblical balance that Paul gives to us in Romans 11:28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Due to rebellion 
they're enemies to the gospel presently. But at the same time, because of God's calling and choosing and electing them as a nation, they are beloved for the sake of the covenant God made with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We should therefore be, I believe, uh, careful to earnestly pray for the conversion of Israel to Jesus Christ. And yet, we must not stand with Israel or any other nation, including our own nation, unconditionally. But only stand with that nation that stands with Jesus Christ, stands with Christ and his holy laws and his holy commandments, God's moral law. Any nation, I submit to you, any nation has a right to defend itself against hostile attacks, including Israel. But no nation that makes itself the enemy of Jesus Christ whether Israel or our own, has a right to our loyalty. If they are the enemy of Christ, they do not have a right to our loyalty. Our loyalty remains with Jesus Christ supremely. And a nation that will follow Christ, we will be loyal to. I do believe that God promised the land to Israel but this is the key. Though God has promised the land to Israel, the privilege of enjoying the blessings of that promise of the land come only when Israel turns in faith to Jesus Christ. We have, in recent sermons, considered God's promise of the land to Israel, which will be realized yet in the future when she turns in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. And we have begun considering sincere objections on the part, I believe, of Bible-believing Christians who object to this particular position. And we don't want to as fellow brethren simply discount and dismiss what uh, fellow Christians may say by way of what the future holds for Israel. We want to consider these things. We want to weigh out biblically. And so I don't want to avoid sincere objections that are offered. And I would say, um, even objections that seem plausible. I want to, again, us not simply to blindly follow a particular position. I want us to consider what the Word of God teaches in the breadth and whole counsel of God with regard to these important matters. And so we'll continue this Lord's Day and probably next Lord's Day to look at objections that are brought to Israel in the future 
being restored to her land in peace and safety when she turns in faith and repentance to Christ. And so I think today there are three objections that we'll be looking at. <clears throat> First objection is that the promise of the land to Israel in the Old Testament uh, is enlarged in the New Testament to encompass the whole earth. Thus, according to this objection, God is finished with any particular promise of the land to Israel uh, in the New Testament age. And there are two passages that we want to briefly look at. Romans 4, 13, and then uh, Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3, in regard to this objection. So Romans 4, 13, again says, For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You notice again there, uh, it says that he, Abraham, should be heir of the world, not of a part of the world, not a, the, merely the promised land, but of, but, but of the world, it says. In the inspired letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul engages both Jewish and Gentile Christians in very important matters related to sin and condemnation of both Jews and Gentiles by God's law. He also engages both Jews and Gentiles uh, in the truth that there is uh, only one way uh, to be right before God, whether one is a Jew or whether one is a Gentile, and that is through the righteousness, the promise of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ and trusting in that righteousness, not in one's own righteousness. And then the Apostle Paul also engages both Jews and Gentiles with regard to in the future that there will be a national salvation that comes to the nations of the world. The fullness of the Gentile nations will be brought in. And at the same time, or uh, there around the same period of time, that all Israel as a nation will be saved as well. And so the way that Paul presents uh, the matter of Jews and Gentiles in the book of Romans is not that Jews in any way and Gentiles who are in Christ Jesus are enemies, bitter enemies, but rather he appeals to them as mutual brethren within the household of God. And though at the time that Paul penned this inspired letter to the Romans, the unbelieving Jews were enemies of the gospel, as we've already noted in Romans 11:28. And at that time, unbelieving Jews were persecutors of Christ and of the apostles and of the church of Jesus Christ, even as the as Saul, who became Paul, was at one time. Nevertheless, 
Nevertheless, in spite of the persecution that was going on at that time, in spite of what they had done to Jesus Christ and rebelling against him and conspiring with the Romans to put Christ to death, in spite of their persecution of the church, Paul's earnest and constant prayer was for their salvation. The salvation of unbelieving Israel in Romans chapter 10. Verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. You see, Paul was not bitter and vindictive toward unbelieving Jews. But his heart was rather broken over the rebellion of Israel. He recognized, he acknowledged the rebellion, but his heart was broken over it. He didn't say, let's take up arms, let's take up weapons, let's persecute the Jews. He left judgment in God's hands and prayed for Israel's salvation. He was not vindictive. Certainly, we are at any time given the right and the duty to defend ourselves against those that are hostile, but not to exercise a vindictive judgment and execute God's vengeance against others. We leave that in the hands of God. Our duty is to pray to seek to be a faithful witness for those who persecute us. That was what Paul did. He prayed for Israel. And so should we constantly be praying for the salvation of Israel. In Romans chapter 4 now, moving from a more broad overview of the letter to the Romans, focusing on Romans chapter 4, Paul establishes that Abraham was not justified on the basis of the law or justified, declared righteous before God on the basis of uh, any law keeping on his part, on Abraham's part. In fact, Paul makes the case that circumcision was introduced by God after Paul, or after Abraham, believed and trusted in the promise of God and, and, and was justified by God. It was after that, while he was yet uncircumcised, that he was justified, not after he was circumcised. And Paul's point is, that he wasn't justified then uh, as a Jew, but as one who is a believer and trusts in the promise of God so that all Jews who believe and trust in Jesus Christ will be justified and all Gentiles who believe and trust in Jesus Christ will be declared righteous and justified before God. Paul says, basically, we don't have the righteousness that is necessary for us to be declared righteous 
before God. None of us does. It requires a sinless righteousness, a perfect righteousness. God doesn't grade on a curve. We must be justified on the basis of a perfect righteousness before God. And only the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham, is the righteousness that we all need, that Jews need, and that Gentiles need. And so the Apostle Paul is bringing Jews and Gentiles to see alike. He's bringing them to see that is not their law-keeping. It is the law-keeping of Jesus Christ, perfect law-keeping, that justifies. As we then come to Romans chapter 4, verse 13, the promise of God to Abraham is said to be that, quote, he would be the heir of the world, that he should be the heir of the world. Now getting to kind of the reason for looking at this particular verse, is Paul saying here that the promise of the land that was made to Abraham and to his posterity as an everlasting possession in Genesis 17:8, and the specific boundaries of that land that were given in Genesis 15:18 never really meant the promised land, but meant the whole earth all along. According to the objection, the promise of the land to Abraham and subsequently to Israel has been replaced or superseded by the promise of the whole earth, thereby making the promise of the promised land to Abraham and his posterity to, uh, to be uh, superseded, replaced. I think it's important that we understand the following in regard to this question and this objection. <clears throat> when Paul uses the word world, the Greek word cosmos, does he mean the geographical world, that is the land and the water of the earth? Or does he mean by the world the Gentile people and nations of the world. In other words, is Paul referring to the geography when he says that Abraham should be the heir of the world? Is he referring to the geography or is he rather referring to the nations? Well, I submit that Paul has the Gentile nations of the world in mind who had come to trust in Jesus Christ when the fullness of the Gentile nations come, come in. For the promise that Abraham should be heir of the world is just a few verses later in the same chapter stated in another way. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. As it is written, I've made thee the father 
of many nations. That was the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 5. And then a few verses after Genesis 17, verses 4 through 5, where God promises that Abraham would be the father of many nations. The Lord, in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 17, promises the land to Abraham and his seed as a distinct blessing, as a distinct blessing and an everlasting possession. Thus, as we look at these promises, there's two promises in Genesis chapter 17. There's the promise of the nations, uh, that Abraham would be the father of many nations. There's the promise of him being heir of the world of many nations. But there's also the promise as well of the land that would be given to Abraham and to his posterity. You see, these dual promises are not hostile to one another. They are friends to one another. That Abraham would be the father of many nations and heir of the world, and that he would at the same time be given and his, and his posterity would be given uh, this land, this promised land, which continues throughout the Old Testament period of time and, and which, as we've noted, is, is prophesied to occur in various places in the prophets. And then, and we'll look at another objection, God willing, next Lord's Day, that this promise continues into the New Testament as well, since it has not been abrogated. <clears throat> In fact, Paul, and just to, again, I think, confirm what I just said, that to be heir of the world means to be heir of the nations of the world, speaking of the people of the nations and not of the land, so that the promise that's made here in Romans 4.13 doesn't replace the promise that God made of the promised land to Abraham and his posterity. When we turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 12, we see that Paul uses the words world and nations as parallel one to another as basically interchangeable one with the other. Paul says, now if the fall of them, that is of Israel as a nation, be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles or the nations, how much more their fullness. So there, Paul uses riches of the world and riches of the nations. Gentiles, uh, again, the, the word ethne uh, in Greek, translated here as Gentiles, means nations. It's also translated as nations. 
There we see Paul using the word world and the word nations interchangeably and parallel one to another. So in going back then to Romans 4.13, for the promise that he should be heir of the world doesn't mean that the promise of the land has been replaced and now the promise in, uh, uh, involves the whole geographical earth uh, land and sea, but is referring to the nations of the world. God promised that he would be the father of many nations and that he will be. Turn with me in your Bibles uh, next because this is a, a similar kind of objection as I mentioned from Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. On the earth. Now, when you go back to the commandment as it's given, to Moses in Exodus chapter 20 verse 12 it says this honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee the promised land so in the original commandment it refers specifically to the promised land that, that they might have a long life Children who are obedient, who are faithful, might have a long life in the promised land. But here, Paul says that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Certainly a, a much greater um, geographical distance or, or a boundary than simply the promised land the whole earth, that thou mayest live long on the earth. So this objection, um, likewise, is directed toward the idea that Paul enlarges the promise of obedience beyond the borders of, of Israel to the borders of the whole earth implying, according to this objection at least, I don't think it's a necessary inference that's drawn, but the inference that's drawn is that the earthly promise land of Canaan no longer applies to Israel. God is no longer concerned with a little piece of real estate, the promised land, but has replaced the earthly promised land with the whole earth. How, how should we consider this? Or is this, again, a, a valid objection? Uh, I, again, believe that it is an inference, but I don't think it's a good and necessary uh, inference to be drawn. 
In the original commandment in Exodus 20, verse 12, the promised reward for faithful children in Israel to whom this moral commandment, the fifth commandment of the Decalogue, was originally given, pertained to dwelling long in the earthly promised land. But, dear ones, this is the change. This is a shift from the Old to the New Testament. Wherever the gospel goes and changes the hearts of children to cheerfully submit to parents the promised gospel blessing accompanies that moral commandment. The moral commandment, dear ones, was never intended by God to be limited to the boundaries of the promised land. All of God's uh, Ten Commandments uh, are intended for all nations. They don't simply pertain to Israel. They were always intended to be God's moral law for all men, for all nations. But when God gave the moral law, Israel, again, uh, shortly thereafter, was dwelling in the promised land. And at the time the, the command was given, they had 40 years yet to be able to enter into the promised land, but they had been promised that already by God. <clears throat> the promised blessing for faithful children, I, I would have you consider this. What about when Israel was taken into exile and captivity in Assyria and in Babylon? Did the fifth commandment still apply to them? They weren't in the land any longer. Did the promises of obedience to faithful children still apply to them, though they were not in the land any longer? Of course they did. Of course they did. You see, the moral commandment and its promise followed God's people wherever they lived. And so likewise, this moral commandment and its promised blessing which was never intended to be limited to Israel, but is given to all nations, will be realized by faithful children dwelling in all portions of the earth. This has nothing to do with replacing the promise that was made to Abraham and his posterity of the earthly promised land. This has to do with the moral commandment that wherever, wherever God's people are, whether in, whether in uh, the promised land or outside the promised land, whether in any portion of the world where God's people who trust in Jesus Christ, who follow Christ, wherever they be, and even non-Christians, are bound by this particular commandment to be faithful, to be obedient in all lawful things to their parents. You see, nothing here either denies uh, or contradicts 
the promise of the earthly promised land to a future converted Israel as an everlasting possession, which is part of an everlasting covenant made with Abraham and his posterity. The Lord will fulfill his promise to a converted nation of Israel when they turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will also bless you, dear children of the covenant. As he promises here, he will bless you. He will make your life a blessing rather than a life of misery. As you submit yourselves to your parents in all lawful matters that you're called to perform in all lawful duties. A second objection. So the first objection had two parts. This is the second objection. <clears throat> I said that there were three. Um, actually, this is the last one for this Lord's Day. We'll continue uh, next Lord's Day with uh, another two or three objections, but uh, this is the last objection that we'll cover, and then we'll have some application. And this is the, the objection. Uh, there is no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile, according to Galatians 3.28, where it says, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. So because there is no longer a distinction between Jews and Gentiles in Christ, there cannot be, the objection continues, the, there cannot be distinctive blessings of land given to Israel as a nation as opposed to other nations in this new covenant age. <clears throat> when Paul states that there is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ, which is very important, but let's not forget what he says thereafter. He also says that there's neither male nor female. Does he mean by that that there is no distinction between men and women? Um, well, that probably would play into the woke crowd uh, today. That's not what, that's not what uh, Paul means, though. Uh, we're not to understand that there are no distinctions uh, between the sexes. To the contrary, there are distinct duties that God has given to men as opposed to women, for example, in marriage. In Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 28, where Paul says, by way of summary, that the duty of husbands is to love their wives as Christ loved the church. The duty of wives is 
to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And there's also distinction of duties within the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, where it makes clear that women are not to teach, they're not to preach, they're not to rule, have places of authority and rule within the church. God is not ordained, Christ is not ordained that for his church. And there are corresponding blessings for women who are faithful in regard to these duties, whether it be in the home, in the family, marriage, or whether it be in the church. There are blessings that will come to faithful women. Those blessings may not be exactly the same for for men who are faithful to their duties, to their wives and to their family, and within the church. There may be a distinction, in other words, between blessings that men receive and women receive. Thus, it should be clear that Paul is not saying that all distinctions between Jews and Gentiles or between men and women have been removed in Christ. What Paul is teaching, I believe, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that Jews and Gentiles, men and women, bond and free, are all equally members of the church of Jesus Christ and are, as such, entitled to the same spiritual blessings and privileges of being united to Jesus Christ. That's the oneness that we have, uh, that we all have in Jesus Christ. Now, what about Israel as a nation? Well, Israel is a Christian nation. In my understanding of prophetic literature and the New Testament as well, Old Testament and New Testament writings, Israel as a Christian nation will not be treated differently in matters of salvation or in matters of Christ's church from all the other Christian nations of the world at that time. She, Israel, will be grafted into the same olive tree, that is, into the same visible church, as all other Christian nations will be when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and all Israel is saved as a nation. The fact that Israel has been promised a particular land by God as an everlasting possession neither denies nor contradicts the oneness Jews and Gentiles have in Jesus Christ. Those are blessings related to salvation. Those are blessings related to being uh, one and having the same access within the visible church of Jesus Christ. In other words, there may be a oneness in Christ and yet be a distinct and different 
blessing materially, outwardly, that God bestows on Israel as a nation as opposed to other nations, or upon certain Christian, individual Christians, as opposed to other individual Christians. Does God bless each individual Christian who is one in Christ exactly the same, with the same material blessings? I don't think so. Um, that's not been my observation uh, that we all receive exactly the same material blessings in Christ. We all have material blessings of some kind in Christ, but they're not all the same. Along with those blessings as well, we don't all who are in Jesus Christ as individual Christians, we don't all have the same trials. We don't have, we don't all have the same losses. We don't all have the same size of bank account. We don't all have the same uh, property. There's not an equality, in other words, with regard to material blessings. God dispenses material blessings as he sees fit in Christ Jesus. We all have the same spiritual blessings. Ephesians 1.4 says that, that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We all have, as in Christ, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification. And even in sanctification, it's not the same with every Christian. Different degrees of sanctification. Glorification in heaven. So we have, again, a oneness as individual Christians, and yet we have a diversity when it comes to material blessings. Is God unfair? Does God love one Christian more because they have more material blessings than the other Christian? Does he love one Christian less because they go through more afflictions, more trials, more suffering than another Christian? Did, Paul, did God love Paul less by giving to him the thorn in the flesh for which he prayed three times that it would be, he would be delivered from it? Then he loved Peter. Did he love James, the brother of John, who was beheaded less than he loved the Apostle John, his brother, who lived, though he went through persecution, apparently he didn't die the death of martyrdom like his brother did. You see, outward blessings differ, and so with nations. Christian nations, historically, not all Christian nations receive the same 
blessings as another Christian nation, just like we have said with regard to individual Christians. They have the same salvific blessings, blessings of salvation. They have the same blessings of being a part of the visible church of Christ. But not necessarily all the same material blessings. So if God has promised to Israel a distinct land in the area where they now dwell, but when it is fully realized there won't be those bloody wars and conflicts that are presently going on. But if God has promised that to Israel as a nation, does he have the right to do so? Can we accuse God of being unfair? Can we accuse God of loving Israel more than other nations? Because really, the New Testament, the Old Testament and New Testament, I believe, says that all the nations of the world are going to come to Christ. All the nations of the world are going to therefore have their own land in which to worship the Lord. In Psalm 72, verses 11 and 17, says that, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, for Christ. All nations shall serve him. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. So you see, dear ones, how God chooses to bless individual Christians and Christian nations is not uniform. One mold does not fit all. To some, God graciously gives more. To others, God gives less material blessings. To some, he gives more afflictions. To others, he gives less. Doesn't mean God loves one more or less than the other because all are in Christ. And even the suffering and even the trials that we experience can have a greater blessing and benefit for our lives. What we go through in our marriages, what we go through in our individual lives, what we go through with our children, what we go through in our families and work, what we go through can actually be an issue forth in a greater blessing than had we not experienced those trials and those afflictions and that suffering. There are some things that we simply do not learn without going through those trials. And so those trials can be the greatest blessing that God gives to us. So is God then being prejudicial and giving the person who goes through trials and ultimately gains greater blessings? Is God being prejudicial to that person over the person who doesn't go through those same trials and therefore doesn't learn perhaps the same lessons and doesn't grow in ever greater conformity as quickly to the image of Christ? 
Dear ones, because God has promised to bless Israel with that earthly promised land does not deny that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Per Galatians 3.28. Nor does it deny that all the promises of God in Christ are yea and amen, as is given to us in 2 Corinthians 1.20. Thus, though God will fulfill his promise to Israel as a Christian nation in causing her to trust Christ, to repent of her sin, to dwell safely in the land of, of promise, God will also give to all Christian nations, as I noted, a land in which to dwell safely. For nations, the fullness of the nations, the fullness of the Gentiles, will be brought in to the visible church. Nations implies that they have boundaries, implies that they have a government. And in Isaiah 19, it speaks of Egypt covenanting with the Lord and covenanting then with, with Israel and with Assyria. Will there not be there's a specific nation that's mentioned. This is spoken of in the Messianic age. This will be realized to the, to the nation of Egypt. Does that mean that God is prejudicial to Egypt? Because he promised to Egypt that blessing? Again, we, we I think, need to get away from that. There is a oneness in Christ in the blessings of salvation and in entrance into the visible church of Jesus Christ. But there, again, are diversity of blessings that God freely chooses to bestow, whether upon individual Christians, upon Christian families, upon Christian nations, as he himself deems, as he himself ordains. So let's just spend uh, a few minutes in closing in a couple matters of application. I think, I think that uh, the, what has just been said is a very important matter of application that we need to take very seriously. But let, let's just uh, think for a moment. First of all, about Abraham. He believed the promise of God that he would be the father of all nations and that all nations would be blessed in his seed in an individual sense. Seed is used both in an individual sense for Christ and is used in a collective sense for Israel. But he believed that God would give him a seed in an individual sense, Jesus, whom he trusted, whom he believed, that we find in Galatians 3.16. Paul labors to make clear in Romans chapter 4 that God justifies those not who work for their righteousness, 
not those who seek by all of their efforts to be righteous in the sight of God. Dear ones, we have to, we have to get this right. To get this wrong is the difference between being saved and not saved. We're not declared righteous on the basis of our obedience to God's law. Obedience to God's law is still in our sanctification what we endeavor. But in our justification before God as our judge, our righteousness is as filthy rags. All of our righteousness, none of us, stands before God righteous. It is only through the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, the one who took upon himself our sin and our condemnation and who lived a perfect life in keeping God's law. It is only him who paid for our sin and who imputes and credits to our account his righteousness, only faith and trust in him. There is no other way. And to add, to say, yes, I believe I'm justified by faith, but I believe I'm also justified by faith plus my works, is a heresy that Paul condemned. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. There is no other way to be justified before God. In fact, Paul says in Romans 4, 5 that God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify the righteous. He justifies the ungodly. Those who have nothing to offer him Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, or tax collector in the temple. But the Pharisee came and was speaking, praying, and saying basically all that he had done that merited God's favor. Works that he had done, keeping God's law. Whereas the publican, the tax collector, could not even look uh, up to heaven, but beat his chest and cried out simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Until we come to that point, there is no hope for us. There is only hope in Jesus Christ. Don't delay, don't wait. Tomorrow may be too late. Today is the day of salvation. And the second application, I want to direct to you children. Dear children, I hope you know how much I love you, care for you, want so much for all of you to grow up to be godly young men and godly young women 
who more than anything else want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you manifest? How do you show forth and evidence your faith in Jesus Christ? By your obedience under God, first and foremost, under God to your parents. Do not think for a second that God does not think that's important as you obey your parents in all the lawful commands and duties that they give to you. There is a blessing associated with that faithful obedience to your parents. There is a blessing of a life lived that is blessed as opposed to a life lived that is in misery. You see, when we begin life by rebelling against our parents and, and not submitting under God to our parents, not because our parents are perfect or sinless, but because God has placed them in that place of authority. When we begin to disregard and discountenance those whom God has given lawful authority over us, it's going to lead to rebellion and doing whatever you want to do rather than what God wants you to do. And when that is the case, I can guarantee you that what you will find is a life of misery. A life of misery, not a blessing. Begin in submission to God, first and foremost, obedience to God. When you obey the Lord and you do so because you love him, you believe in him, you trust in him, the evidence that you are submitting to Christ will be in your life, your submission to your parents. Likewise, in all other ways in which we are to lawfully submit to those who have lawful authority over us, whether it be in the home, in the family, with wives uh, submitting to their husbands, whether it be in the church, uh, members su submitting uh, to those who are ordained by God to be elders within the church. And when we have lawful civil magistrates likewise submitting uh, uh, to them, uh, obviously we should, we should obey all lawful commands, not because someone who is unlawful has the authority, but because it is in agreement with God's own commands. But submission and obedience, dear ones, is the way to life.
Don't let the world twist you and make you think you're missing out because you are obedient. You are faithful. They are the ones that are missing out on a life of blessedness. They're the ones who are going to, as we see our culture and our world that is following basically love yourself and do whatever you want. Follow your own dream. We see where this is all leading to destruction. And so God help you. God help us all to see obedience, cheerful, loving obedience and to be a grace from God that evidences our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, how we thank thee and praise thee uh, for the truth of thy word, for thy Holy Spirit that has been given to us to understand, uh, to receive it by faith, to repent wherein we have failed, and to walk in newness of life and obedience to Christ. Lord, let us not be deceived by the enemy to think that obedience to those who have lawful authority over us is the way to destruction, is the way to misery. That's the lie of Satan. Help us, our God, to understand and to receive and believe and practice the truth that the way to life, the way, Lord, to, in, uh, to blessing is through obedience to those who have lawful authority over us. We pray, our God, that thou would minister unto us, thy people, through thy word, in Jesus' name, amen.